fire. Four blocks away, I got a visual on the apartment building. Can you upgrade this to a third alarm? This is the working part. Be advised, we have a woman trapped on the balcony on the fourth floor alpha bubble corner. We were unable to make that rescue. We're making a rescue now on the alpha side. Welcome to another edition of Undercover Mental Health. Today, I got a buddy of mine on the show. He knows me well. He knows my family very well. And uh, I always get bugged that I don't have many paramedic friends, which isn't true. I have lots. And he just happens to be one of them. So how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Steve. Yeah. Doing really good. Glad to be here, man. You're always in a good mood. And uh, you know what? You're such a giver and you serve people and... And you work on the east side of Vancouver. You work in the big city. You work downtown east side. It's good. It's uh, a couple of things. You said I'm always good. And I have been trying to answer that question a little bit more honestly with people. So I am actually good right now because I'm on a podcast with you. But uh, it's funny because I'm not always good. <laughs> and I'm just learning to be not always good. I do work the downtown east side. Fortunately, um, I, my posting is rural the province. I work in here. Um, there's often a shortage for the Metro or the city paramedics. So I'm able to go down there and pick up some shifts. And that's where I like to pick up my shifts is the downtown uh, East side. Uh, it's, there's a lot of, um, I was trying to find honest and real things in my life and there's not too much more honesty or realism than the downtown East side. So I do like working down there. So if I can pick a station to work at, I do. I like that one. It's a good one. Why? What are the people like? Describe some of the people. I, you know what? I have some experience down on Maine and Hastings, and I met <laughs> a lot of incredible people with incredible right. stories that were real. And it was, yeah. it was heart-wrenching to yeah. see them living on the streets and be homeless. And they were just yeah. such kind, beautiful people with stories and how they ended up on the street. What are some of those people like? What's the east side of Vancouver like? Um, what are the people like? it's a lot to take in i'll start there uh you kind of nailed it when you said um that they're honest and that they're real uh it's funny i I'm, I'm having a bit of an emotional response as we start this and talk about it and as we talk about it i can even just start to feel the emotion of the of some of the connection with some of the humans down there because i think especially now with covid and the way things are going on there's a, a real need for connection and you know with people in isolation and 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 being removed from their loved ones that's what those people live all the time you know that a lot of the people that live in the downtown east side are isolated and by themselves and and separated from family and so what i find down there is the what the reason i do the job paramedicine is for real connection you know when you're walking down the street and you pop into a shopper's drug mart or whatever like you did with me, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Yeah, it's sunny, it's raining, whatever. There's often maybe not a bunch of connection in our lives and some of it's superficial. And I find at this stage right now, <clears throat> and for the last few years, part of my journey has been trying to really connect with human beings and, and be authentic with them and have them be authentic with me. 
And if you're looking for real, true, honest, authentic human beings, then uh, the downtown east side is a place that you will definitely find them. So that's one thing I would start right off the bat. Um, you know, uh, I'm on a, on a rural island right now. We get a lot of wind and a lot of storms. And I spent a lot of my time outside here because it's beautiful. And, and, and the trees and nature, it's very giving and it's very grounding. And I'll find myself sometimes going into storms because you know exactly what you're getting. You know, the wind is ripping in my face. The rain is coming down. I can hear branches breaking. This is real. For me, it's the, the real connection with real human beings and the honesty and the truth and the bravery, really. I know you quite well. Uh, I've known you for many years. I know you suffer from depression and I think about you. I even worry about you. Departments that I've worked for, we've had an amazing relationship with BCS. Amazing. I've, I have nothing but amazing, yeah. great things to say about the ambulance paramedics that I've worked with over the years. I have lots of good friends who are paramedics and only one that I know of doesn't suffer from depression, to be honest. You battle depression. So what is it like for a paramedic to have to go down to the east side when you're, you know, some days you're struggling to get out of bed? What's, what's the trick there? How do you do that? Yeah, that's a good one. You know, uh, you and I talked uh, a couple of days ago and we talked about, uh, I think I talked about it a lot, the toolbox, you know, and what's in the toolbox and, and what kind of things can get you out of bed. And you're right, I do live with depression. There's no doubt about it. I lived with it before I was a paramedic and I'm living with it as a paramedic. I'll live with it after. There's a couple of ways, you know, how do I keep my depression in line and get down there and and show up for these people? You know, if that's the question, I, I think uh, there's honor in that. And, and for me, and I, I have to be very careful around this because people will start to identify with what they do. So I don't want to take my uniform as a paramedic and use it as, I don't want to make necessarily be, live through my uniform. You know what I mean when I say that? If you're going to be somebody that lives with, that has depression, and is gonna put yourself into a first responder setting uh, as a paramedic, which is what I know. Part of me getting out of bed and me having a purpose in life is paramedicine. That's a lot of my, I'm not gonna say motivation, but I'm gonna say, again, for me, it's almost therapeutic. When we first started talking in this discussion, I talked about connection with humans. So for me, and I'm saying this, and I think it's really important that people are careful about this, there is part of my job actually helps me with my depression. Does that make sense to you, Steve? I'd say my resiliency now in my life is like an eight and a half. I always say half because I, I really want to say nine, but it's, I have my down days for sure. But I've worked very hard on building myself up. But what people don't understand is I do it every day. Every morning, I have to build myself up. But to be able to go to work and... Right now, I'm probably performing at the highest level I've had to. Uh, you know, I'm being tested. I'm learning. I'm being challenged. I'm so in the game. That is purpose, right? And you are meant to serve. I know you. You're meant to serve. I'm meant to serve. I feel like I'm serving. I feel like I'm actually giving back to the fire service, which is my purpose, I believe, in yes. so many different ways. You know, I, I love mentoring. I was mentored by amazing people. It's just such a great journey for me 
And I, I'm connected to addiction and homelessness because I was exposed to it early on and all through my life. And I understand how addiction is such a demon and how it puts people in a really bad place. And it's not their fault. Like you can drive down the east side and turn your head and, but I could be there. Like I could be there. So could my kids. Just so grateful. You know, somehow we've stayed on a road and we're all still doing good and things are good. But when I look at those people, I think of friends and family members. That's what affects me. I, those are real people down there. And I know, cause I, you know, when I used to go box there, there was a guy by the name of Jerry and he'd wait outside for me. And there's a very few people that call me Steven, a good friend of mine. Cause he knows it <laughs> bugs me. This homeless man would wait for me. One day he asked me, what's your name? I said, Steve, I said, what's yours? He said, Jerry, we shook hands. We chatted. He used to be an executive for Safeway, not in the top five, you know, start boozing, you know, mm-hmm. on a plane, traveling around, mm-hmm. booze got the better of him. Lost yep. his wife. Next thing you know, he's getting fired. Next thing you know, he's bagging groceries at a small, you know, little corner store type grocery store. And then he's on the street on the east side. And he's talking to Steve as he's going into the boxing club when he's 13. And he, he would always call me Steven. And it would resonate with me. But I enjoyed seeing him. And then one day he wasn't there. And I asked a lady by the name of June, hey, where's Jerry? And she said, oh, Steve, he's gone. Just like that. It's just yeah. so accepted down there that I really connected with this guy at 13 years of age. And it really bothered me. Like I really felt at 13 years of age connected with these people that are doing heroin. And you think in, in your life, no way a 13 year old should be even talking to someone who's doing heroin. I brought my kids through there last Christmas. We walked it mm-hmm. and they were freaking out. I said, you guys, you got nothing to fear down here. You know, someone might jump on you because they're wigging out. They're not going to yeah. jump on you because, you know, you're a, you're a normie. I, I think the understanding of people that are, suffer from addiction is, is a lack of understanding. People aren't exposed to it, so they can't understand it. But I understand it, and, it, 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 you know, I'm connected to it in so many ways throughout my life. But I think of those people when I see them. I think of their story when I see their faces. Oh, yeah. I'm not in that mosh pit, and, and I just I worry about you because you're in it. And you're there, but it's nice to hear that it, you know, it's therapeutic for you to be there. It's nice to hear that. We have people in our lives and we hear their words and we formulate game plans. We fill our toolbox. So when I say I'm down there doing that and, and, and being an empath and being in this environment with these humans, it's very difficult not to take some of that on, you know, partly because of you and knowing you gave me the courage to get into therapy even before I became a paramedic and how I'm able to keep these things in order is because I contacted SISM early in my career. I am not afraid to talk about the feelings I'm having inside. I'm cognizant of my depression. Sometimes there's like a general want to label or paint everybody that's a responder with a big PTSD brush and that's not always accurate. I have a talk therapist and I have a, a therapist that I have through the employer that helps me with some calls I've been through and some things I've experienced. It's really important. Like from, again, another thing I got from you is being brave enough to say, Hey, I got some stuff and I'm, I want to find out about it. And I want to look at it. And I want to, it's, it's not all about being a firefighter, a police officer, a paramedic. It really gets back to family of origin and the early stuff in the day. And, no matter what you do for a job, 
it's really important, I think, if people do feel that they have depression or that they aren't feeling right inside, that they do find someone that they can talk to and they get some of those feelings out. And they, it's really important that you find a way. You know, my toolbox before I met the Steves of the world and some other people in my life was full of, you know, marijuana and, and other type of things that I would do to try and cope with. And I didn't want to just put paramedicine in that box as one of the things that I take out to deal with my stuff. I hope that's clear. I hope that you understand that, you know, it's, it's really important to, to love self, take care of self. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I really do view the uniform and paramedicine as a vehicle to connect with these fantastic human beings, be it downtown East side, be it Maple Ridge, be it wherever I'm still interacting with these people in their time in need. And that is part of who I am for sure. And you're right. We do have that in us, but it for sure. Um, you mentioned purpose and it's really important, especially as dudes that we find a purpose like that and we are able to pursue it. And we think, you know, are, are my, James Allen wrote a book called As a Man Thinketh, which is an incredible book. I read it all the time. And it, it talks about making sure that, you, you know, your thoughts and dreams are in align with your words and actions and, and different things in your life and making sure that you're actually, hey, am I, am I in a process? Am I heading down a road? Am I doing the things I should be doing? And paramedicine is part of that. My therapy is part of that. But I'm, you know, I'm very careful about going into this, carrying the bags that I was already carrying in my life. Because I've got depression. I have days that are super shitty, but I'll tell you, you know, I, I really, there's something about being able to, to show up and get in there and, and go on those calls and be in the mosh pit, like you say, and, and get right down there with these humans. And I, I've had those experiences as well, you know, on the downtown. I think everywhere I've lived in my life, I've kind of sought out that place in the city where there's a lot of real humans and real stuff going on and for whatever reason it's easier for me to be vulnerable and feel safe in a place that a lot of people wouldn't feel safe and that might sound strange to some of the people listening but I probably feel the safest <laughs> uh, down there you know running around helping out those folks and being in that environment and uh, you know one of my early exposures was with you you know down there working uh, helping out at Covenant House and, and doing the things that we did down there and as you also know, I think, and I'll, I'll share this with everybody and with you again, you know, my older sister, she lost her battle with heroin. You know, she, many years ago, she developed a, an addiction. Um, she was addicted to alcohol and she was addicted to heroin and, and marijuana, a lot of different drugs. And uh, if I would have known now what I know then, or you know what I'm trying to say, but she had a lot of wounds and she carried a lot of things from her childhood that she again, was just, you know, people are usually trying to feel okay in their skin, you know, addictions of fear of feeling. And um, so we lost her, you know, unfortunately, her heroin, and she rehabbed many times and, 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 and relapsed. And just to be honest, you know, and open with everybody, part of me, you know, I think part of this, there's, there'll be times I'll be dealing with someone that's maybe uh, struggling, you know, and I'll find out who they are and, and what they're struggling with. And, there's an opportunity in life to, to give, you know, and to pay and to serve. I talk about those crossroads for human beings. And every time I have an opportunity, uh, in the, when, they, when you're in school, they call them teachable moments. And they say you're on scene with someone and maybe they just come up from an overdose. And uh, you have a teachable moment now. And you can maybe, there's an, there could be impressionable. And you might have an opportunity to say, hey. Because when you're working in, in, in the city, you get a different partner all the time. It's just like, 
they call it the worst ever blind 12 hour blind date ever when you have to spend 12 hours in a car with another paramedic but a lot of them are like hey i've seen this guy a bunch of times and i've seen this and i've seen that and i've tried to get him to rehab and i've talked to him you know 50 first dates i got a real easy memory you know where i'm able to just forget that last call i can still do this talk to me in 10 years maybe i'll have a different answer but just wipe that slate clean and show up for that human that needs me at that moment. And maybe there's that one time they're going to go, you know what? Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm ready now to hear somebody or talk to somebody because I want to hope and believe that my sister encountered those human beings in her life. You know, that she, as she was going on her journey, that maybe there were some people that came to her and said, Hey, you know, there, there's a way out or we can help or, or, or what's happening inside that's making you self-medicate or, or why are you doing what you know and I don't know how many times she got that opportunity or if she ever did but I would want to hope that in the universe out there that that was happening yeah part of me too is is doing that and paying that forward and going out and trying to connect with these humans and going I don't give a shit that you're shooting up or whatever's happening right now let's find out some other stuff and some extra warm blankets and they're actually doing a thing at St. Paul's now too where you can get people connected with counseling and stuff like that and that's also part of my part of my journey I think and part of my purpose is serving that and doing that and maybe being there for someone at the at that right moment when they're ready to take the the hands and the wheel of their bus and take it for a drive the city of Vancouver the province of British Columbia and I know you you're a you're a serving human being but I know BCS has so many paramedics at work in the downtown east side and you know the city is so lucky to have committed paramedics that do that job every day on every one of their shifts. And you and I both know, we know heroin, we've never done it, but we know it's a monster and we know what it does to people. We know how many good people have been lost to that monster. And yeah, you know, you just, uh, if you have no exposure to someone who's been addicted to heroin, uh, I, man, you're lucky because that thing, that disease, it's a horrible, horrible way to live your life. It brings you into a place that's it's very dark and you need that monster several times a day. Like that monster becomes you. It absolutely does. You know, Stephen, if you think you go back, we, you know, I think I touched on attachment a little bit and family of origin. And why I talk about that stuff is that you know, there's certain things that have to happen when you're a little person, you know, when you're a little baby, you know, zero to 20 months. 20 to 36 months, you know, 36 and certain landmarks and things that have to happen through your primary caregivers when you're a little person. And certain things happen through the course of life and you might get to a place where you start to get a little bit older and that people talk about addictive personalities and, and, and you know, reasons why people turn to drugs or turn to alcohol or turn to or gambling or sex or whatever they might have, you know. A lot of that stuff, man, it goes, you know, goes way back to that, you know, and if you can identify it, if you're fortunate enough to meet someone in your life that can go, hey, it's great if it can be a parent or someone can come along when you're, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, and you're getting the right guidance and love and things are happening. That's great. If that doesn't happen, and it because and we know it doesn't with broken homes and alcohol and this and that, sometimes people will try and fix that themselves and they they don't want to feel the feelings they're having and you know i if 
I'm a parent, you know, I've got a 26 year old daughter. It's really difficult parenting and you're trying to raise a kid, you know, and you're trying to do the right things and make the right decisions. You very well might be kind of fucked up yourself and you might not know that you're kind of screwing up your kids a little bit. So it's an unfortunate thing. And I, I try and take a lot of this stuff into consideration when I see these human beings down there and does having it as close to home help and seeing it with my sister and living at my family. Absolutely. But I mean, like you said, they're human beings, man. And they're, and they're part of families and they have loved ones and there's, they love people and people love them. And it's addiction is completely misunderstood. And it's, uh, it's, it's really difficult. I don't necessarily have to really stretch and really go to a place to try and find this feeling, but, uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's a, it's a very misunderstood thing. And, and especially, you know, through the media and through the way that the downtown East side is viewed and the way that people that use are viewed. And you can tell like when they're going to open up like a place like insight, you know, like, a or, or their views on the way they're going to have legal drugs, and non-legal drugs or different countries or what they've done. And it's a, it's a huge picture, man. It's a, it's a big thing for sure. Some parents whose kids have been addicted and they just love their kids and they've actually mm-hmm. purchased them places, just wanted their kids to be safe because they realized they couldn't fight this anymore and they were losing you their child. And I look back on my own life when, I mean, it's my running joke. I ran away from home and quit smoking when I was 11. You know, I was a little <laughs> shit rat, right? But I look back on my life and it started with my dad realizing he was going to lose his son. I know the moment it happened. I can visualize it right now. He got me into one of the toughest boxing clubs in Vancouver. I had to take the bus down there. I got exposed to all this different energy. And, and then he allowed me to play hockey. What are the chances of both of my hockey coaches were police officers? And I want to impress them. I used to run from the police. I had no respect for the police, you know, and but now I'm trying to impress these two police officers. And, you know, and then I started playing football and lacrosse, like sport saved my life. And so did the fire department. It's interesting that you lost your sister to heroin because her brother, one of them ended up being a paramedic and the other one was a police officer in Florida. You know what I mean? I've always been a marijuana user, you know, and I've always been when people are like, oh, it's a gateway drug. I'd be like, no, it's not. Um, it kind of is, though, to be totally honest, because I know myself in my path, you will, you're going to try to smoke a little bit of weed. And if it goes well, you're going to smoke a bit of hash. And if that goes good, you might try mushrooms. And if everything's cool and you're running with certain people that you trust and your kid because you're listening to your buddies, because that's who you think is the people that know everything, you might try a bit of Coke. And then if that all goes good and someone's like, hey, you know, especially nowadays, not so much when you and I were young, but nowadays it's, hey, I got an oxy. So if, if you are in a vulnerable spot and you are, have some feelings and stuff inside and you're carrying some attachment, some wounds, and you try an opiate and all of a sudden you feel safe and warm and, and, and in control and you don't feel like a loser, you're going to probably go more and more and try and go after that feeling as opposed to being like, hey, I'm 15. My friends are trying drugs. I'm going to experiment. Hey, I feel a lot better when I'm high on these opiates, but I know they're dangerous. So I'm going to go talk to my folks and get therapy and counseling. That's probably not going to happen. So 
there's a really good chance you're right. If there's something on board that you might try that because, Hey man, opiates are really, unfortunately they're really, really good for pain. They're super addictive and they will also help if you've got some stuff on board that you just want to escape away from. And that could be trying to escape from yourself. So yeah, it's, uh, it's tricky. And I did an overdose not too long ago, Steve, that was a dude that hurt his back, got onto oxys through a physician. Lots of paramedics will tell you this story. Man. They'll tell you all the stories I'm telling you, basically. And then eventually gets off the oxys and knows he can score fentanyl or stuff on the street way cheaper, but and still has a sore back. I wound up resuscitating this dude like a guy like you or me, just with a fucked up back and on on the wrong type of stuff because the opiates help him with his pain. Well, it's interesting also what first responders do. Like, so when we have an outbreak of, you know, massive overdoses throughout the cities, we ask people when we go to respond to them, you know, what's the name? Is it chalk or is it Applejack? People start saying the same name over again. What color is it? It's blue. It's orange. You start spreading the word and you know, as well as anybody that Covenant House, Union Gospel Mission, there's so many places that can spread that information to help people not do those drugs when they overdose. There's so much happening in a big city when there's bad drugs on the street. There's first responders. There's people out there that are trying to care for them. There's, you know, there's so many organizations working to battle these demons. But I don't know what the answer is. But I do know one thing. If that was my kid down there, I just want that person to be safe. And I don't see that happening. And that's the hard thing to watch is to just so many people. And it just keeps happening. And it's, it's hard to watch because there's not enough you can do. You just talked about that guy who had the bad back. That is super common and get hooked. And yeah, it's not tomorrow you're on the street, but it's a definite path to losing your marriage to pain. And prescription medication has destroyed so many families, so many. Huge numbers. It's a very simple path in many ways. Like you said, you, you played it out perfectly there. You know, I've never tried weed. There's a reason why. When my dad knew he was going to lose me and he tried to get me on the right path, he just begged me never to do drugs. And to mm. him, you know, drugs was weed. <laughs> that was the sure. big drug. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, people are doing LSD and acid, you know, where I live. Yeah, yeah. But my dad's like, weed. So I, <laughs> I made up for it in alcohol. Both my parents showed me, you know, you can drink as much of that as you want and you can survive, right? Well, we're all products of our, you know, the path we walked, right? And our environments and what we see and what's okay and what's not. And no, I hear you, man. It's, there's gifts and everything. Yeah, one thing about my sister's addiction is that it made me terrified of opiates. So any, any sort of opiate drug, right? So, um, you know, morphine, uh, heroin, anything that I knew that was an opiate, I was really gun shy around that. You know, one of the gifts of, of Sarah's addiction was certainly um, was me being scared of that. I, I tried upper drugs, non-opiate drugs. I was okay with experimenting with mushrooms, stuff like that. But anything that I knew was an opiate I stayed away from. Um, and, and it was similar with alcohol. Both my biological parents were really bad alcoholics. So for me, you know, and it, and it was hectic. You know, I, there was a lot of hectic home stuff happening. And I parents divorced when I was three. I had a real association around drinking to get drunk. I still drink casually. I have a few drinks, but I couldn't tell you the last time I was like hammered. And uh, yeah, so for me, it was marijuana and music. You know, I play 
drums and I play guitar and bass. And so I, I played and listened to a ton of music. And for whatever reason, I thankfully started journaling young, at a young age, which I didn't know what I was doing. It was more like a diary. I journal much differently now. But I easily, like you talk about, the path to being on Hastings or the path to having a chronic addiction or the path to any of those things, it, it's, there's a real thin line. It's usually a couple of turns here or there. Someone comes along in your life. Uh, the gentleman that you met when you're 13, we have these people that come along that could help us. Maybe we hear a word here or there, and then there's a bit of fate and a bit of luck. But I'm 52, and I work with paramedics that are younger than I am, that have more experience than I do, but I'm older, so I have more life experience. And I think the employer it likes that. Like I work with these young paramedics, and they're just they don't have the the comprehension of maybe what the human being is going through. I think it affects their care. You know, I think that it's hard for them to look at the entire picture if they just paint everybody with that same attic brush or drunk brush. That I think is a super dangerous thing, you know, and you have to uh, be very, very careful with uh, with treating those people and judging them, I guess is what I'm getting at. I don't want to be judged. So I, I would say for people that haven't been through a ton of adversity, though, it, it, it almost becomes a protection thing for them to mm-hmm. judge, you know what, to put people in a box and... They're like, serves you right, get a job. It's almost like a, I have a coping mechanism when it comes to suicide. You know, I respect the right for people to take their own lives. I mean, I deal with suicides a lot, but I don't say that when it's my friends or my brother. You think they're speaking from fear? A little bit. They're protecting themselves. Yeah. I think especially new first responders, that it's a scary world out there. And me and you accept it. We're like into it. We're like, you yeah. know, we're, we're high-fiving homeless people. And bringing them food and we're like just having a great conversation and we leave feeling better where some younger first responders are just they just want to get the job done and they're like god this is bullshit i'm not freaking going back there i've been to that person 12 times already this is bullshit and they leave that call all flustered and angered and it's like but that is what your job is what do you say to the young first responder that's three years in and they are freaking out right now with anxiety depression they're like I can't do this job. I can't deal with any more crazies. I can't deal with any more drug addicts. Like, but they want to stay being a paramedic. You can't hide a paramedic. You can't. What's your organization got for the people that need help right now? BCM, it's one of the things that they do very well is their CISM program, Critical Incident Stress Management. I, don't, I can't compare it to other services and how they deal with it. Um, you could probably comment on how FIRE does it. It seems to me, though, that this is something that BC Ambulance, although I don't really know if they understand how people get to where they get to, I don't know if they understand that, but I do know that CISM, Critical Instrument Stress Management, is a good thing and it's ran very well by BC Ambulance. So I've been in the service for five years. If you asked a 20-year veteran, I'm sure they would say that 20 years ago, there was still that um, the connotation with reaching out and getting help. And calling SISM after a tough call was more of a suck it up type of atmosphere. That's not so much here. I would say that that's, that is a good thing. BCMS does do that very well. They really encourage you to call. You know, I'll be honest with you. The first time I called, I dialed the number. I've told you this too. I dialed the number 10 or 15 times and just wouldn't press send, you know, cause I, there was some shame and stuff in there, but that's some of my own stuff. And, uh, that has nothing to do with BC ambulance. That has nothing to do with paramedicine. That has something to do with me not wanting to admit that I needed help or not wanting to admit that I was scared, you know, or I was having these feelings that were 
they were scaring the shit out of me. So SISM is a good program for sure. PCMS does that very well. They've helped me out tremendously. I've had great experiences on the phone with them. And then subsequently, um, they're able to help you out and hook you up with uh, further care if you need it. It's just about making the call. And that, that, so what do I do? I do the same thing when I was in the private sector. I try and create a culture or an atmosphere where people, where it's okay for them to be them. You know, when I, I used to run restaurants back in the day and uh, I had a bunch of staff, you know, the last restaurant I was at, I had over a hundred staff, big beast of the restaurant. And if I had a, you know, a little 16 year old bus boy that really was into ironing his shirt and was really into wearing polished shoes and just wanted to always have his head up and talk to humans. Well, I want to create a culture where it's okay for him to do that. I want him to know that when he comes to work and he is that and he's authentic and is himself, he's going to be rewarded with shifts and, and praise. So how do I do that on an ambulance? I say, well, I want them to understand that it's completely normal and okay. You should be reaching out to SISM. If you are having these feelings, we're human beings. And you know, as being in fire, you show up on the scene, there's things we have to see and deal with that normal civilians, I will say, don't have to see or deal with. And as humans, we should be responding a certain way to someone who's in pain or distress or scared or a hurt child. But through our protocols and our training, we're trained how to deal with the situation. But it's what do you do later on? You can't just hang on to that. So to wrap up that answer to that question, there's going to be things you're going to encounter, sights, sounds, smells, feelings. You can't just keep them in a bag and drag that with you for your life. You've got to find a way to deal with that, I think, is through SISM. Like, what is the number, let's say, if there is out of every thousand firefighters in the lower mainland, is there a percentage of numbers of dudes that reach out to SISM? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. About a year ago, I, I did this research because in my old life, I had to make a pitch to try and get coverage in the next negotiation. So it's about 20%. It's low. So 20 out of 100 firefighters are reaching out for assistance through the programs that are offered to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to, you, you have some connections higher up in BC ambulance as well. It'd be interesting to know what that number is for paramedics, because everything you're saying is true. Paramedics do have depression. They sometimes our employer, there's a feeling that we could get some more support out there. And then, you know, when you throw things like COVID on top, and I wonder if the numbers will go up for fire and for paramedics now around COVID, because I know that our, my employer is really letting everyone know right now that really call you know now's the time you might be experiencing things you might not normally be experiencing due to covid um so we should find out through our connections what the number is for paramedics uh men uh it's very consistent with men in general like there's a great app out there it's a depression app heads up guys it's just for guys but it's an amazing app that walks you through your first journey into depression if you have depression and you go to that app it talks to you, the app. It's an amazing app. I've gone through it hundreds of times. I afford it to so many people, but it's mostly guys. I don't get to deal with a lot of women because you know, they usually go to women. I don't get calls from women. I get calls from mostly firefighters, some police officers, and a couple of paramedics. I refer that app out right away, and then I stay in touch. You know, It's recognize, refer, and reconnect. That's what you do as, as a dude that wants to help someone. You don't leave them alone, but walking up to somebody who's suffering and you don't know what to do, you don't have to know what to do. If that person is 
you know, connected to you in any way and they are in a really bad way and might harm themselves, you phone that crisis line and you say, I have a friend of mine that needs to talk to you. And you just pass the phone over and you just stay there. Bam, you just did an intervention. You know what I mean? It's starting to get set up. And I think that's what people don't understand about how easy it is to get help. And especially for guys, you don't have to phone the crisis line at the beginning. You could just go online. There's so many apps out there. I'm a big fan of heads up guys, but um, there's so many opportunities to learn about yourself. And that's what clinical counseling does. It teaches you about yourself. But I've been to many clinical counselors and my mind wasn't open to receiving, you know, that help. So I left there phoning my wife or, you know, sitting down with her and say, Hey, it just doesn't work for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And I wouldn't until I got really bad until I got in big trouble. Did I actually really open myself up for help? And now I'm like the anti-smoker. I didn't have that ability till later in life. I love learning more stuff about myself. And you know what? I don't beat myself up anymore. I, I tell myself I'm a good person. I, I try and live every day like special and it's a good day and I'm grateful. I have a gratitude thing I do in the morning and you know what? I work on myself in the morning so I can have a good day. It's simple for me. I'm not on meds. I worked really hard to get eight and a half in resiliency, really hard. And I, I damn well want to stay there. And so uh, I work hard at it. I never want to be in that valley again. My journey and I look back, I mean, I can see it so clearly, as Steve Jobs said, you can see your path looking backwards, but you can't see it looking forward. I can see how I got to this place looking backwards. And it was a shit show, but I understand, you know, how many people stepped up in my life and helped me and supported me. And so it's easy for me to pay that forward a little bit and, you know, just say something nice or just say something that might tweak someone or just stick your hand out when somebody's down on one knee and just say, Hey, it's okay. It's all, it's going to be all good. And they'll look at you and go, it is. And you're going to go, yeah, I know a couple of people that have been where you are and boom, you can make a connection. <laughs> I want to be able to do those things. It's funny. You just remind me of it. Um, like reaching down, helping someone out or seeing someone that's not, uh, maybe has a frown on their face or isn't quite feeling it at the moment. There's two things I want to say. Um, I cheat now with the uniform. Because when I have my paramedic uniform on and I'm running around the city, you can approach anybody at any fucking time and be like, hey, how you doing? And you're not a crazy person because you're wearing a paramedic uniform. So I use it as a vehicle to connect with these people and be like, hey, you know, because you can tell, I mean, you can just look at a human being and see maybe what they're, what, uh, what they're feeling. That's number one. The second thing I want to say is that when you were talking about what you're talking about there, what I realized, Steve, is that you, it sounds like you not, maybe not even knowing it. I always tell you about how you are giving gifts and you don't even know that you're giving them. I've said that to you before, where just you by living your life and doing, and just the way you live your life day to day, man, with human beings in the moment, you're giving your gift and you're helping humans around you and the people that love you and that you love. So hearing what you just said, man, it sounds like you were helping everybody around you and before you were helping yourself, man. And fuck, dude, it's so beautiful because we know deep down that if we want to help our family and our wife and our kids, we have to be loving self and taking care of ourselves. Because Steve, man, you've been given this gift of helping and mentoring without even trying to do it, man. It's just who you are. It's just 
that's just you, dude. It's in your core. So, cause just listening to you talk about that, uh, is fucking great. And I, it's so fantastic. Um, and it also reminds me about how, uh, it is never too late. You do things in the morning. You're trying to live your routine, trying to live to your best self. I do as well. Do I get there every day? Absolutely not. So yeah, what you were saying, Steve is about, uh, when you were just talking about what you were talking about, it remind me again, and this is another thing we need to keep fresh for you and I and for the listeners. It is never too late. How old you are, what you're doing. And that's another thing that I utilize with people as well As people look at me and I tell them part of my story. They're like, oh, fuck, you know, you're this paramedic and blah, blah. And I'm just this guy. And I'm like, hey, man, I was you kind of not that long ago. I was one or two turns away from being where you are. And almost part of the daily mantra, because there's going to be days when you get up and you're going to shit the fucking bed. I'm talking for myself. There's going to be days when I don't connect with the people like I needed to. Maybe I wasn't honoring to my mom or something. The next day, dude, it's not too late. Get up the next day. Give it a shot. So part of the message and part of that vibe, it's important for your listeners to hear that, man. And you are such a prime example of that, dude. And that, you know, the tenacity. And you're talking about eight and a half resilience. I've gotten to the point where there's no real other choice, you know, like it's really, I'm kind of like, well, I want to see how it all ends. And I really want to, you know, every day is kind of an adventure and is kind of a gift, man. Uh, Even the shitty days. So that was just really great. It's just awesome to hear you say that stuff. No, it's funny because you said a lot of nice stuff there. And uh, you do know you don't get paid for this podcast, right? I know <laughs> there's no money coming your way. No, but I am getting paid, man, because, you know, like uh, we talked on the phone yesterday for a bit. And at the end of the conversation, I was like, my chest gets a little tight when I talk about this stuff because I sometimes forget about what the gift of connection is, you know, and you, there's just something really valuable and trusting being able to to be yourself in front of somebody and to, and to have that safety with someone to have a really good conversation. So it is a trying time for everybody. There's so much fear out there right now, Steve, you know, and you and I talk about depression, we talk about uh, being safe and having people that we can reach out to and talk to. COVID is, is tricky, you know, and it's changed so much. It's changed the way we lived and changed the way we work. It has certainly impacted first responders. I mean, you know, I know, Uh, For us, it was really, really hard. A big part of the, when I show up on scene, you know, having my other responders there and working together as a team. And and again, I take my shit pretty serious. Somebody picks up the phone and calls 911. They want a group of people to show up and, you know, and do some stuff that's the right thing to do at the right time. And COVID's made that really tricky. So it's it's a, a really difficult time for connection. It's a difficult time for safety. And, uh, you know, it's really, really important that all of our first responder brother and sisters keep that in mind and, you know, don't hesitate to reach out and don't hesitate to, to make a call. And, and calls are tough right now. All the PPE and, you know, and, and things are coming down the line through dispatch. You don't know what kind of calls you're showing up on. And, you know, you hear somebody cough in the background and <laughs> everybody's freaking out. So just be safe and, and, and follow those rules that we follow, which is, you know, you got to love on yourself and, and protect yourself, protect your partner. You know, there's no emergency in a pandemic. And one of my paramedic mentors tells me that, you know, just uh, slow down, take it step by step and, and protect yourself. You work in one of the toughest places in North America. So I want to thank you for everything you're doing. I know you personally, so my heart's twice the size when I talk to you. But you know what? I feel so happy for those people that live on the streets when there's people like you out there working 
and caring for them and responding. And I think, you know, the city of Vancouver can pay, you know, BC Ambulance a great amount of gratitude because the people that work down there are dedicated, they care, and police and fire too, but, you know, paramedics are right in there and, and they're in that mosh pit and they're exposed and they're busting their ass, but they're also making a difference. And thanks so much for what you do. Thanks for your giving, for serving. I'm just really glad to have you in my life. Steve, man, that uh, those words mean a lot from you. Thank you. I feel the same way, man. It's an honor to know you. Um, you're, you're a special cat. You really are. And you, you know, you, again, you just, uh, you really, you definitely make the, the world and the people around you better for knowing you. I appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing here too. It's really important. Um, and, you know, there's a real, you made a good point, man, about going down there and it's, it is a tough grind and it sometimes seems overwhelming. Uh, but you and I have also talked about being in the moment and being really present. And uh, if you break it down to that, it makes it a little bit easier. You can eat an elephant, right? Just one little tiny bite at a time. So uh, thank you, man. And uh, keep doing what you're doing, Steve. You know, it's really, really important stuff. And um, I am super honored and proud to be one of the the disciples, one of the soldiers, man. And I'm going to try and share and spread out some of the Steve goodness as I as I walk uh, my path and, and go on my journey. And I hope to do another one of these again with you soon. Keep doing what you're doing, brother. Thank you so much. Take care. Be safe. Okay. You're welcome. Thanks, Steve. That wraps up another edition of Undercover Mental Health. Thank you so much for listening and helping us break down the stigma around mental health. Take care. Thank you.